Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. This is going to be episode number 390. Can you believe it's 390 episodes? Unbelievable. Uh, We're actually coming up on my three-year anniversary starting the podcast here in a couple weeks uh, in mid-February. I believe it was February 15th of uh, 2015. Uh, Pretty exciting stuff. Um, Guys, today we have Travis McClendon uh, with Zero Guide Fees. Uh, We're going to be talking and breaking down uh, the elk units uh, in Arizona. We're also going to be talking to Travis about his dad, uh, John McClendon, who is someone that I have admired for many years and uh, consider him to kind of be the grandfather of uh, uh, the, the, go- the godfather or the grandfather, so to speak, of Arizona elk hunting. Uh, and he's done so much to um, put Arizona on the map as far as uh, trophy quality and, 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 you know, bringing out those trophy bulls and, and publicizing our, our great state. And um, so it's going to be a fun episode. Before we get to that, I want to thank the sponsors. I want to thank GoHunt.com Inside. I want to remind you guys, they have the 2018 draw odds uh, posted on their website, and you have to be an Insider member in order to see those uh, draw odds. They are the most accurate draw odds, and they have them all up for Arizona, uh, as as well as Utah, and I believe there's a, a, a couple other states that either they're working on or about to release any day now. Um, but they are the most accurate draw odds. You need to be an insider member in order to see those draw odds. It is the most effective uh, resource for a Western hunter, so you need to be an insider member. In order to sign up, go to gohunt.com forward slash jscott. You'll follow, and it'll ask you to enter in the jscott promo code there. You're actually going to get a $50 Go Hunt gear shop uh, gift card just for signing up. Uh, follow the prompts, uh, and uh, you'll love it. Uh, you'll love uh, being an insider member. They also do lots of gear giveaways, hunt giveaways, uh, and it's an incredible resource for any of those western states that you're applying for. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting uh, for making the best hunting gear available. You can go to kuyu.com uh, and check out all of the gear, all of the clothing, uh, everything that's available on uh, kuyu.com. I want to thank them for their sponsorship. Also, the Outdoorsman's, the Optics Authority, Cody Nelson, Outdoorsman's.com, uh, 1-800-291-8065. If you use the J. Scott promo code either on the phone with them or online, you're going to get a 10% discount there uh, with the guys at the Outdoorsman's. Uh, and then PhoneScope, uh, PhoneScope.com. Uh, use the J. Scott 16 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all purchases uh, there at phonescope.com. I want to thank them for their sponsorship. Uh, I want to really thank you guys for your loyal support of my podcast. All the emails, all the appreciative, all the all the great comments that I get from you guys, all the you know questions, the hard questions, the easy questions. I appreciate them all, and I appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, you can send me an email if you would like to send a comment or a question to jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. You can also follow along on my Instagram at jscottoutdoors. You can send me a direct message there as well. Uh, Dar and I are getting excited to head to Mexico for our coos deer hunts, and uh, we're expecting uh, some really nice bucks. Just got word. Uh, one of our do-it-yourself properties, uh, Stephen Ranella, the meat eater, uh, and his group are down there right now. He just shot a really good buck. 
and I can't wait to hear all about that on one of our leases. So it's an exciting time of year, guys. Um, don't forget the deadline is February 13th for the Arizona uh, elk and antelope applications. So um, let's get right into this episode with Travis McClendon. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Travis McClendon of Arizona Elk Outfitters and Zero Guide Fees on the line. And for you loyal listeners out there, if it sounds like I've got a froggy voice, I woke up this morning and I I would say that the devil himself has taken up residency in the back of my throat and it's uh, on fire and sore, so I apologize for that. But uh, we're going to have a great conversation today with Travis McClendon. And Travis, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jay. Before we get into it, I just want to kind of set the tone of this podcast episode in that Travis's dad, John McClendon, is uh, someone that I look up to very, very much and have for a long, long time. Uh, I would argue that Travis's dad, John, is, you know, I kind of refer to him as, quote, unquote, the godfather of elk hunting in Arizona. Um, John is a I consider him a friend, I consider him a mentor, and someone that I've looked up to for a long, long time, so I'm going to have some questions for Travis in regards to growing up, uh, learning from his dad, John, and, and um, you know, I think there's very, very few people that have accomplished uh, as much as your dad has done, Travis, and, and uh, he's always been professional with me, um, you know, he, he's getting up into, I think it's early 70s, and he's, he still has that mindset of, you know, eat, sleep, and kill, and he's constantly, you know, running his trail cameras, and he's scouting, and he's lo- always looking for a big buck or a big bull or something, and I love that about your dad. I love how much that he loves the hunt. Uh, he loves the guide. He loves, you know, he loves trying to figure out these giant animals and giant elk and today we're going to talk about, you know, with the Arizona elk applications coming out here, um, the draw deadline is, I believe, around the 14th of February. It's the, that Tuesday. Um, and uh, I want to pick your brain, Travis, on a bunch of different issues. But first of all, thanks for coming on. Um, I'm looking forward to having you on here. And uh, uh, I'd like to ask you some questions about what's it like to be the son of John McClendon. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I listen to your podcast quite a bit, and um, you, you do a great job, so I'm honored to be on your, your program for sure. Um, well, it's been a pretty awesome ride. I think you know my dad getting me involved when I was 10 years old into the hunting, I know he was super... Uh, excited. I'll never forget when he came home, uh, very excited, very pumped in the middle of the night, uh, woke us up, took us out to the truck, and he had this 270-inch 6x6 in the back of his truck. And, you know, of course, we thought it was the it was the bee's knees. I mean, it was like the biggest thing we'd ever seen. And we just thought that was the best thing ever and how great of Hunter my dad was. And and for me, I, that's where it started. And he, um, you know, it started me going, man, I want to do that when I grow up. And so 
he started hunting in New Mexico and more in Arizona. And that's, I mean, he, he entered the, a decade where it was just getting good in Arizona. The herds were getting better. The bulls were getting bigger. And, um, you know, he just hit it right as far as that goes. But um, my dad has always been, um, you know, a straight shooter. My dad's always been somebody who, you know, is very concerned with doing it right. My dad's been somebody who um, wanted to do things the right way, the best way, and give it his all. He did it, you know, he's never done anything halfway. And, you know, he's really passed that on to his kids. And that's one thing that uh, I can say about my dad is that he is, um, if he does it, he does it full out. He wants to be the best at it. And he has drive and determination that he really passed on to us. So it, it was fun. It was fun ha being on his journey, on his ride. I remember take, he took him to uh, New Mexico uh, when back then you could just buy, you know, buy the tag over the counter and go archery elk hunt. And I remember when I was very little, he shot a, a giant elk. Of course, it was 375 inches, and we thought, you know, it was a state record at the time. So that's what I remember about my dad being just totally involved and totally surrounded and consumed with hunting, and that r really led to me and my brother doing the exact same thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one thing you know, that I admire of many things that I admire about him is his focus. And, um, you know, there's been several bulls that I can think of where he's told me the stories himself and then you hear, you know, legendary stories of, of your dad where he gets focused on one bull and he will with either with a client or with himself they will be hunting one bull in unit nine or unit 10 or wherever it may be. And that's the bull they're hunting. And he may, you know, be out all night listening at bulls in the, you know, in the dark. And, and, uh, there may be other bulls that are great bulls and he gets focused and, you know, gets really honed in and focused on one bull. And it's been fun to watch. Um, it's been fun to watch them and, hear stories we have mutual friend uh, Monty Parsons up in up there in unit nine and up there in Tucson and he tells me stories of hanging around with your dad and how you know single-minded how single focused how how he can you know get on one particular bull and like one track mind have you seen that or having seen that firsthand yourself where do you think that determination and focus on, you know, trying to harvest one particular animal comes from, and, and what have you learned from that? Well, he's very, one thing you can't tell by just looking at hunters, and one thing you can't tell with my dad is, um, you know, having that intuition and knowing what, how the elk think and how they move and their patterns and being at the right place at the right time. I mean, my, that's something, unless you hang out with my dad, unless you hang out with John and you hunt with them and you guide or, you know, you're guiding with them or he's guiding you, that's something you can't teach. And I don't know, but he is like crazy good at intuition, like knowing what a big bull is going to do, where he's going to be, where he's going to be the next day or the you know, that night or where he's going to be over the summertime compared to the wintertime. And being in the right area, I mean, he's just, he's had a knack for that since I've ever, been, you know, been around him. And and I don't know how you learn that. I just think it's something that you being out in the field. So that's one thing that a lot of people don't see about my dad is that his intuition is unbelievable. Um, 
and that's how he was killed. And, you know, a lot of his clients have been on some really great elk in the past is because of that intuition and knowing their patterns and just getting it right over a period of time. Um, and, yeah, he's very locked in on certain bulls. I mean, he's uh, <laughs> once he gets a, you know, I, he drew a unit nine tag a couple of years ago and went home without a bull, waited 15 years to draw it, didn't kill an elk because he was after one particular bull and it was either that bull or go home and he's i think when you get to that level of what you've harvested in the past and where you've been he's like you know he's trophy hunter all the way it's either this bull i'm going to go home without and he actually means it you know we take out guys all the time who say oh i'm okay to go home without an elk on this hunt but they get down on the day six or day seven and now they change their mind because the realization of them actually going home with it without anything starts to set in and um you know he always says you can't kill the big one if you're willing to kill the small one so that's kind of been his motto and he's passed that on to me i'm not nearly the trophy hunter my dad is if i have a bull at 40 yards broadside and he's a really nice bull that looked good on the wall i'm i'm pulling the trigger or i'm shooting him with my bow he's not like that you know he's totally cool and okay with going home without and i think that distinguishes a lot of guys from being you know, a trophy hunter. This is there's a true trophy hunter uh, presence or a spirit about him that he's always had, and he's always wanted to up his game and get one better. Absolutely, I've seen it firsthand. I've <laughs> I've witnessed his intensity and and just seen his persistence, and it's awesome. Um, you know, having grown up with that mentality, were there times growing up where maybe you were like, come on, Dad, let's just go hunt this bull or let's go hunt this buck. Like, you know, why don't you just shoot that one? I mean, can you think of any specific times where you liked, you know, on a deer or on a, on a bull or something where you're just like, you know, come on, Dad, this is a good buck. Don't you want to shoot it? And he's just so focused on something else. Well, yeah, just a couple of years ago, he drew the strip tag um, in 2014 uh, on the Arizona Strip there in 13B, had an archery tag, and you know, we had some history with the buck that we tried to kill the year before with one, or, one of his clients, and they shot at it three times and missed it, and the buck lived uh, until the next year, and of course it was bigger, and that was his buck. You know, That was the one he came for. That was the one he put in for. That was the one we watched in the summertime. That was his buck. That's the one he wanted, and uh, it was like that, and you couldn't show him anything else. He didn't, it didn't matter. Um, and I was telling him, I'm like, Dad, I've got some really good other bucks here we got on camera that I think would be easier to hunt <clears throat> you might want to consider. He wouldn't even look at them. He's like, well, let's, let's just see what happens. You know, let's just see what happens. And on the third, I think on the second or third day, um, you know, we found out that the buck that he wanted um, got shot by another hunter. And only at that time and at that point would he – you know, relent and then say, okay, what else do you got for me? You know, what else can I hunt? Where else can I go? If that wouldn't have happened, he would have never, he would have hunted that deer until it was either dead or the season was over. Uh, he, when he hunted the strip, um, you talk about endurance and patience and will. In 2009, me, my brother, and my dad all got drawn for the strip archery. This was the second year they had the strip tag for the archery hunters. And we had found a buck, or he found a buck that he wanted 
set of sights on it, sit in water. Um, it came in with nine bucks opening morning. He drew back. He couldn't, he couldn't get a shot at the big one because there was a nice big typical in front of it. Pulled back, but he didn't want to shoot the typical. He wanted the non-typical. So he comes back to camp, and he says, okay, those are 21-day seasons. He goes, I'm, I'm sitting in that water until I kill that buck or the season's over. And so he ended up sitting that water. Now, we all had shot and went home. So me and my brother, we were done. We had to go back like on day eight or nine. My dad ended up sitting in that water hole every single day, camped by himself, sat that water hole morning and night for the next 12 days by himself. And that buck came in two more times, and he was never able to couldn't see it through a sight pen because it was too dark. Went home without the deer. But he hunted 21 days every day, and half of that hunt was completely up there, completely by himself. And you know those days are long when you're all by yourself. And oh, yeah. uh, went home without the deer. That's the kind of determination. I want to do that. I couldn't do that. I'd be like, okay, find me a different deer to shoot. <laughs> but, you know, he, but that's what he does. And, you know, and on, in 2014, just to kind of wrap up that story, I had to show him a different deer that he'd never seen before. He said, okay, I'll go after that deer. But he only did that after the other deer was shot and was no longer in play. And that, ultimately that deer became that world record, you know, SCI world record typical. But he, he wouldn't even look at that deer. Never even seen that deer until after the other deer had been shot and uh, was out of the was out of the game. But that's just kind of who he is. That's really neat. Um, so growing up, uh, your younger brother Levi, right? You're the oldest. Correct. So growing up, uh, you know, you're hunting with your dad. He's teaching you. At at what point was there was there or was there a point where you said, hey, Dad, I want to do this my way? Or was there ever a time when you got, you know, to a certain age or a certain hunt that you can remember where you, because I'm sure you took a lot of direction from him, uh, not only out of respect, but just out of, you know, he's your dad. Uh, but was there a point when you're like, okay, Dad, I got this. I think I can do it. I'm, you know, Tell me about that. Or, or is it still where you really seek his advice and you, you know, I'm just curious how that plays out. Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, you know, being a McClendon, we're very strong-headed anyway, and, uh, or I should say stubborn. And so when you get both of us in the woods, there's definitely some, uh, <laughs> there's definitely some conversations about what we should do. Um, most of the time I do listen to my dad. I, you know, he's, he's the best caller when it comes to, you know, calling elk that I've ever been around hands down. I mean, there's, if you want somebody to call for you, you want my dad. I mean, he's an excellent caller. He knows when to call, how to call, what, what kind of chirps to do and when to do them. And, you know, I can't call in these stinking elk. And then he goes out with me and he's calling these elk in like, there's no tomorrow. And I'm like, what the heck, you know, how does that happen? But um, I remember distinctly, I mean, there was always times, Jay, when we were walking through the woods or setting up on an elk, and I might have been, you know, probably up to about 16, I listened to everything he said, and then after that, I started kind of wanting to do my way, and, um, or I thought I had a better idea or a <laughs> different direction, 
But I distinctly remember we were doing the governor's tag in Unit 9. Uh, Mike Malik was the hunter, and I was helping my dad out. And I don't remember the exact year. It was probably 2005, six, something like that. And um, we, me and my dad were together with Mike the hunter, and we had a big, big bull that we wanted to shoot. And I distinctly remember he, it was getting dark. Mike only had two more days to hunt, and he had to leave. And it was in a really thick spot, as you know, Unit 9 can be. And uh, his suggestion was that we needed to go back to camp and come back in the morning. But we knew that bull was within 100 yards, 200 yards of us. And, of course, my suggestion was we got enough light. We got a little bit more light. I think we need to get to this fence line. The direction that bull was going was he was going to head to the fence. And if any times you know, Jay, you look down a fence, you can see better. And... I'm like, I think, Dad, let's at least go down to this fence. I know it's a couple hundred yards. I know it's getting dark. But let's go down this fence line and see if this bull's on this fence line because he was walking that direction, and they kind of hang up on the fence every now and again anyway. And he said, okay. And I was surprised that he said yes. And, I, you know, I talked him into it. And there's always that possibility of you scaring that bull and running him out of the country. We didn't know exactly where that bull was. And so my dad wanted to go back and do it again in the morning, and I talked him into, you know, let's at least go down there, walk through the trees, get to that fence line, look up. And sure enough, he said, okay, we walked to that fence line, looked up, and that bull happened just to be on that fence line 150 yards, and we killed him. And that was kind of the moment where he, you know, he, I think, started understanding that, you know, we, we both have ideas and they're both good, and sometimes uh, one's not right and sometimes one's not wrong. And sometimes they both can be right or both can be wrong. But that was the moment I remember where he started trusting me uh, and what I was what I was doing. And that was neat for me. That had to be a really neat moment for, for both of you. Whether he would admit it or not, he probably was super proud of the fact that, you know, you suggested that. Now I can say that if you guys wander down there to that fence line and all of a sudden they're coming right at you and you blow the whole herd, that, you know, exactly. <laughs> the outcome of the story might have been different, but I, I'm sure it was a proud moment for both of you where, you know, in essence, you know, with grasshopper, when you snatch the pebble from my hand, it's time for you to leave type of thing. You know, you've, you've, right. you've earned your stripes, you've figured it out. I'm sure he was proud uh, of that for sure. Awesome. It, it, it's uh Really cool to hear you tell the stories about your dad. And I keep meaning to have your dad on. We've tried several times, and we're just, uh, I, I'm, I'm bound and determined to get him on. And, and we've just, our schedules haven't coincided several times and, and what have you. But uh, I think he would be a great interview as well. Um, we've got the 2018 uh, elk regulations have just come out. I uh, want to talk to you, obviously, about your Zero Guide Fees program and about Arizona Elk Outfitters. But before we get into that, I um, want to talk about your history uh, in some of these elk units as a kid, you know, whether it be 9 or 10 or 7 or 8 or whatever, whatever unit it may be. And when did you start traipsing around with your dad in these units and you know, are there any particular moments that you can remember, um, you know, specifically in certain units, um, 
you know, that any stories you could share about learning these units with your dad? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, um, you know, nine was always the, uh, my favorite, or I should say my dad's favorite unit to be in. So we just spent a lot of time in unit nine, um, when I was younger. Um, you know, and obviously six A was right behind our house be, being, living there in Cottonwood. We spent a lot of time there and, um, you know, doing the elk there. And we, we spent a lot of time on the Kaibab. I mean, my dad was known for elk, but, you know, hunted deer a lot. And, you know, over the years, his clients had killed a lot of good deer. Um, so we spent time up there. But with the elk coming up, um, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time in Unit 10. I, I didn't hunt deer over there growing up. Um, the elk weren't as prevalent. I think the first hunt they had in 10 was, what, 1988 maybe, somewhere in the late 80s. And so the elk weren't over there as much. So we stayed a lot of the 6A, we stayed in, you know, around 7, around Flagstaff, and then up in, the, you know, Unit 9 was was the unit back then, and it had a lot of nice areas that nobody knew except my dad. And, you know, if anybody knows my dad, my dad's like the undercover brother of all time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and now the day and age that we're, you know, everybody knows everything, right? I mean, with technology and what's happening, there's no secret spots. And so, but my dad, he, he had a hard time telling his own son, his own son's information because he was afraid we would leak it. So, <clears throat> but growing up, I mean, those were the good units that we hunted. And, um, you know, in the 80s when the first raffle guy was, was taken off and my dad and Mike Whalen, um, you know, took the raffle guy, uh, they took him to Unit 9 and shot that, no, it was like 412 or 414 bull. That kind of really sealed the deal for Unit 9 and me. And I know they started trying to get in a video, and I was used. They were doing North Star Productions, and they started really doing videos hard and heavy in the late 80s and early 90s. And, of course, they used me as the pack mule. I would go, and, you know, back then you'd have the ginormous tripods and the big beta cams that you put on your shoulder, and then you had to carry the battery pack around. And so I was good use for that. So that was kind of my job is to carry the camera equipment around. Well, I'm sure you have, uh, you learned a lot by following those two around with the experience that they have. But it's amazing to see the technology and, you know, the big tripods and the big cameras. Uh, and now to see the technology of the lightweight tripods and, you know, some of these small cameras that shoot in 4K, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Uh, in, you know, not that long of a time period, you know, we're talking 20 years uh, you know, maybe, maybe 25, maybe even 30 years, but that's in the grand scheme of things, that's not a lot of time, but it's amazing to see how far technology has come with the camera equipment, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. And it's, you know, it's good. I mean, it started a lot of people off. I mean, I know Doyle Moss has, has talked to me a lot about, you know, him seeing my dad in the videos and his guiding, and that's really inspired him to start his, you know, guiding and hunting and videoing and and stuff like that. So I think my dad has been a, a, a good representation of, of, of guiding elk in Arizona and how to do it. And I think it, he was the godfather. I think he's, you know, he still guides. He guided this, you know, he's, he's still out there doing it. He's still running the cameras and still loves it. It's, in his, it's a passion for him. He likes to video things. And, you know, I don't think he'll ever want to stop. He tells me every year he's going to quit guiding, and then every year he ends up going out there. So... I don't think he can ever really retire unless he's in a wheelchair. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other thing, too, is um, 
he's pretty sneaky. He's kind of a techie, to be honest with you. You would think he's kind of, you know, he's definitely old school in mentality, but uh, uh, I hear that he knows ins and outs of iPhones and Google Earth and all, you know, knows trail cameras inside and out. And, um, isn't he a little bit of a sneaky techie guy? Totally, totally. And a lot, a lot of that has to do with his sons, especially my brother. My brother's the tech guru. And so anything that new comes out that's innovative, that's going to, you know, make hunting easier, he, we pass that on to him and then we teach him how to do it and he picks it up pretty quick. So yeah, he's got the iPhones, the iPads, the drones, he's got the cameras, he's Google Earth, he's got all the, the topo maps up on his phone, flat lines, topo digital maps now, I mean, all that he's got. So he's, he's in the know, he's definitely old school mentality with a new, new school technology. <laughs> For sure. Let's talk specific elk units. Um, you know, obviously, talk about the conditions as far as we're in a severe drought. Um, anybody that's listening to this podcast uh, needs to know, like here in Phoenix, I think we've been 120-some days without moisture. Um, saw something that was like third driest ever on record. Um, you know, I look at it two ways. I look at it as, you know, applying for elk in Arizona, you know, here in another, say, month at the, you know, beginning of, or, you know, first week of February or whatever, you know, going into the draw, going into the application period, as far as moisture, it's not looking great at all. Now, curious your thoughts on this. I'll kind of lay this out there. One would say that, you know, potentially we could have a big spring and a big, you know, early summer, or, you know, early spring, late spring moisture and everything be just fine. On the other hand, I think you could say, well, these elk have, you know, they're, it's not too cold. They're not super stressed or stressed at all other than if they can find feed and water, they should be okay. Um, you know, as far as antler growth, I know, and, and, you know, people with tons of points, you know, they might want to think, hey, this might not be the year to apply because it's not looking great now. It's super dry now. But someone on the other side could say, hey, it's super dry now, but that doesn't really matter as far as antler growth. What matters is, you know, winter moisture, late winter, early spring moisture, early green up, non-stressed animals, you know, in early monsoons to finish those elk out. Um, First question I'd ask is, what do you see the conditions being uh, in these elk units, and where do you, what side of the spectrum do you stand on as far as trying to project antler growth? Well, I think there's a couple schools of thought, um, and I have my opinion. Of course, these are just opinions. Um, but doing this for 25 years in Arizona, you definitely – notice patterns when the rain comes, when the feed comes, when it doesn't, when the snow comes. I remember several years ago we had in Flagstaff snow up to the, the rooftops of houses. We had more, we set records like crazy, and everybody thought that the antler growth was just going to be crazy good for the spring, and it was average. Um, and then I've seen years where it's been dry like this, and it's been good. I think there's something to say not – not to the fact of when the rain comes and the feed comes in the snowpack that grows that feed. I think there's something to say about that, but there's also something to say when it grows and at what time. I think 
looking at this so long, there's a time if the if the snow comes early and it brings up a lot of the feed in spring and that feed grows to maturity and those elk eat the feed at maturity, does it benefit the bone structure at maturity than it does when it's just baby shoots just coming out of the ground? And I think there's there's a difference of when the feed grows where it really benefits the elk and their and the and the antlers compared to when the feed's already there or maybe the maturity that doesn't benefit the animals as much, uh, especially when it comes to deer and elk. Because I've seen it where, like I said, it snowed a bunch and the antlers were average, and I've seen it where it's been dry and the antlers have been really good. And so, so I'm, on the, I'm at the school of thought that I wouldn't worry about the moisture right now with the snow. I think it's more important when the rain comes and the, grow, and the feed grows to when the, antler, uh, when the elk eat that eat the feed that they're eating at what time that feed is growing, at what levels or what stages that feed is. So I'm not too concerned at this point. Um, do I always want to err on having too much moisture? Absolutely. I mean, if we're going to throw, you know, if we want moisture, let's get as much snow in here as we can. Let's get that snow packed, which m makes for better long-term spring feed for the elk. But if we're not going to have a lot of moisture, I think we're still okay. My, my suggestion is everybody, um, you know, with point guard now, buy your point guard. Get your point guard in place. Buy it. It's $5. Get the point guard. Put in for the animal. If it turns out that they're not going to be good, you can give back that tag one time and keep your points. So that'll help. That'll tell you, hey, if the animal growth's not good and you went and applied for something, now you've got an out. So that's one suggestion. I mean, the other suggestion is, you know, obviously just put in for the bonus point and wait it out to the following year. But with point guard being in place, I think for me, I'm risking it. I'm going to apply for it. I'm going to hope that we have good uh, rain in the spring, which produces the feed, which hopefully produces the elk. I mean, some of these units, Jay, as you know, they don't hardly ever get snow and they don't hardly ever get rain, but yet the elk still survive and they still do good. So I think it's more important that we get those rains uh, for me, would be March, April, May, then a whole bunch of snowpack snow in December and January and February. That's my take. Okay, good, good stuff. Um, Travis, what are your favorite units for elk? Or start with your favorite and then maybe what are the handful of other units that you like? Well, you really can't, I mean, obviously 23 North um, for archery, elk, and rifle is going to be one of your best units because, you know, you got the reservation, you got great elk, and you don't have any hunters in the woods. The problem with that is there's not a lot of tag allocation, so my next favorite unit would, probably, would be Unit 9 for me. Um, if, I put a big if, now it's my dad's favorite unit, hands down, he's going to hunt 9 every, every year. The problem with Unit 9 over the last 10, 15 years is those upper echelon bulls, because I feel they've given too many late rifle tags out, those upper echelon older age class bulls, seven, eight, nine, ten year old bulls, they're not as prevalent as there were as they used to be in unit nine unless they go in the park in the res. And so you don't see as many older age class bulls, which in turn doesn't get those you know, you see a lot of three if you're a guy who wants to kill a three fifty to a three sixty bull, um, unit nine's awesome. I mean, lots of bulls in that class range and a great hunting experience. They don't oversaturate it with too many hunters. And Unit 9, if that's what your goal, Unit 9 is really hard to beat. Um, my favorite unit is Unit 10. Um, 
the success rate's a lot lower than unit nine, for, especially for the archery hunters. If you're an archery guy wanting to do nine, you're over 50% consistently. In unit 10, you're at 30% consistently. But in unit 10, I, I feel you have a chance at a, a upper echelon bull, a 370-plus bull in unit 10. So I'll take my chances with unit 10, especially if I'm the one hunting, you know, having the ability in the, to shoot further or to walk more, to stay with those elk. I like unit 10. I think there's more 370-plus bulls per capita on that unit than there is in any other unit um, in the state. And it's getting a lot better even now that they're managing the Bokeas, uh you know, ranch. You're not seeing as many guides or as many hunters on that ranch as well. So for me right now, unit 10. I will tell you a couple up-and-coming units that I feel are really good right now. Seven West, I got to guide uh, in that unit this year and was really impressed. Hadn't been there in a couple years. Really impressed with the bull quality in Seven West. Might give out a little too many tags, but you cannot go anywhere in that unit and not get on good bulls. Anywhere you go in that unit this past year, you were on good bulls. So Seven West right now, for me, is one of those units that I would love to have a tag in because I really feel you're going to be able to find a 360-plus bull uh, on that archery hunt and kill it. And they got that, you know, that muzzleloader, early muzzleloader bull, that, which could be a really good tag for somebody this year. So, so right now, Unit 10 is going to be my favorite for elk. Um, I like Unit 1. I know that's popular. I don't like the fact they do 350 tags. I don't like the, fa <clears throat> I don't like the fact that they have cow hunts going on at the same time. So your upper echelon units for me are 23 north, 9 and 10. There's no cow hunts, just bull hunts, and those are the only units like that. So that's my list. Good stuff. Question, I'm going to bounce back to a couple things you said. Um, unit 9, uh, do you feel like when the Supai, you know, I'm going to just roughly guess like 10 years ago, the Supai actually started doing hunts on the reservation, which borders Unit 9, do you feel like that is a contributing factor to Unit 9's trophy quality slipping? In other words, they used to have some sanctuary on the Supai when they started those hunts. It, they started killing a lot of those big bulls that used to cross back and forth. Do you feel that that's affected the quality in 9? It has <clears throat> definitely affected the quality for sure. How much, I don't know, but definitely it definitely hasn't helped. So I would say yes to that question. It's definitely affected it. And like I said, I think a lot of those late rifle hunts have also affected it, I think, and they raised them again this year. And I know guys want opportunity, but if you're looking for trophy, um, you know, those younger bulls are getting, are getting hammered on those late hunts. I think they had a 40% success rate, maybe even higher on the late rifle hunts. That's a lot of young bulls that are getting harvested that could t turn into a good bulls later on in life. And so those two things, I definitely think are contributing. Because look at it, Jay. They haven't messed with the early rifle uh, numbers, and they haven't messed with the archery numbers. The only ones they've messed with are the late. And they started out with 100, then they went to 200. Now they're up to 300-plus, I believe. So that has yeah, to be a contributing factor also. I agree with you. Unit 9, I'm looking at it, and it's actually, Travis, you'll, you'll cringe, but it's 400 tags this year. In unit nine, wow. and and so, what? Just to kind of recap, what you're saying is, because they're offering so many tags on the late hunts, year over year over year, 
when someone shoots a, you know, four-year-old bull that's, say, a 280, 290, just, you know, fork into a six, you know, young bull, well, three years, two years from now, that bull is a 340, 350 bull or bigger. What you're saying is by sneaking in, in essence, more late hunters and people shooting bulls, and maybe in, they're not necessarily shooting big trophy bulls in nine, but they're killing more bulls, you're saying that's affecting what then the following year you see during the rut. You're like, where are all the, you know, where are all the other bulls? Well, they've been slowly shooting them on the late hunts, right? Correct. And that's exactly, that's exactly right. And because we run cameras out nine, we can tell you with certainty that all the big bulls are coming on the cameras either by the park or by the res line. You don't get, a, a large quantity of big bulls, mature bulls, south uh, in the southern units. You might get one or two. <clears throat> but when we're running cameras in the summertime, the majority of the 380-plus bulls are right by the res line and the park line. And that tells me that, yes, are those hunts affecting the elk? Yes. But that's the only – I mean, if you eliminated the reservation in the park, like if they weren't there, Unit 9 would not have big bulls. The majority no, of the big bulls that do unit. make it, it'd just be a normal unit right now because right. We're, you don't find 400-inch bulls in the southern part of the unit unless they travel. They're not there in the summertime. All of those bulls are on the res or on the park line. And wouldn't you also agree, Travis, um, you know, having been going there since you were a kid and, you know, I know your dad used to find some big bulls in the middle of the unit, in the southern end of the unit, on all tips of the unit. Whereas, you know, it used to be a pretty big place that, with, you know, without Google Earth, without a lot of some of the technology that we have now, where your dad knew these little honey holes and what have you, like you said before, there's really no secrets out there. And so you're kind of limited to chasing those biggest bulls that have the sanctuary areas, you know, with the park and with the res and such. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago when you used to go out there with your dad, you guys probably found big bulls you know, right out in the middle of the unit or in the southern part of the unit because they could hide. Now there's no hiding. They have to seek sanctuary in places where there's no hunting. Correct. Absolutely. You don't, you can't go to the dog knobs and find giant bulls. Uh, not unless they moved in for the rut. You don't, you don't find them, you know, in the southern part of that at all. I mean, they're all in the summertime. 95% of them, I mean, you'll find one or two. There's always an exception to the rule, but um, 90% of them are on that northern. And it's like that with every unit in the state, really. I mean, if you think about all the high-quality units that Arizona is providing big trophy bulls in it, they all border reservations. Unit 1, 27, uh, 383C, 9, 10. They're, they're, they have some kind of sanctuary that keeps them uh, 23 north and south. There's some kind of sanctuary that keeps the older age class bulls. Uh, and, you know, I think without of those, Jade, you would have to, if you want to stay a state that provides trophy quality elk, you would have to limit it even more like Utah does if you didn't have the reservations to do it for us. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's talk about Unit 10 a little bit. Your favorite unit um, Unit 10, I'm very, very happy that they have, you know, last year they bumped the archery tags back down to 100. Uh, you know, I think it got as high as 200. 
at one point in time, you know, I, I feel like the last banner, you know, just banner year in 2000 or in uh, Unit 10 was 2005. Um, I actually had a tag that year. Um, and, you know, that's 12 years ago. But since then, they just kept raising the, the, the archery tag numbers. I think they got as high as 200 as well as, you know, I can remember back in, you know, 03, 04, 05, kind of those years, there was only, I believe, 20 or 25 early rifle permits in 10. And at one point in time, a few years ago, they got as high as 100 early rifle uh, tags in Unit 10. And I feel like Unit 10 kind of went through a period of where the cream of what we were seeing, say, in 05, where, you know, there could be, you know, 30 or 40 bulls over 370. I mean, just everywhere you looked, there was a 370 bull. And they really took that cream off by, you know, I think, one, adding a bunch of archery tags, a bunch of late tags. But I think the thing that really killed it for a while was, you know, having 100 early bull tags. Now, you talked about Unit 10 and, you know, that, that there's more 370 bulls per, per acre or so to speak in Unit 10. I would agree with you, but don't you think that's from the vast size of Unit 10 that there will always be a big bull or two because of how big the unit is and how there's so many thick areas. Um, and then talk more about your thoughts on the tag allocations in 10. Well, I think you're right. I mean, 2005, uh, that's when Sean killed that world record. I know we uh, shot that other bull. I had a tag in 2001, and Stan, my buddy, shot that number five bull in the world. And there was, you know, of course, we were hunting on the Bocchius Ranch most of those times, and it was amazing. It was like having your own private ranch. Um, there was a lot of elk and a lot of big bulls and hardly any hunters. Um, and thank God, and I don't know who is, um, maybe it's the game warden, uh, Noah, maybe it's, uh, you know, the commission, maybe it's both of them. And if it is, I think, you know, for us trophy hunters, I want to pat them on the back because, you know, very rarely once you start giving out tag allocations, do you see them reduced. And I really love the fact that Unit 10 has been reduced. Uh, when you get up to 200 archery hunters and then you get out to 100 early rifle hunters, it's, um, you're going to kill some mature bulls, no doubt about it. But that's only going to last for a little while before you start, you know, you start making all those bulls go away because you killed them all. So in my opinion, you know, reducing it back to 100, getting the early rifle tag down to 40, and I think they even reduced the late tags in there this year too, which I it's think is awesome. 350, I think from, I think it was as high as 500, it's back to 350. Yes. I think, I, do you agree that Unit 10, if they keep it like this, for another year or two, I mean, we may have a chance to see some of that presence of, of, of the Unit 10 that you and I love and grew up, you know, cut our teeth on, yes. you know, just unbelievable. <clears throat> I really think that if they can keep it where it's at for a year or two, um, and if drought doesn't wipe us out, like, we have a chance to get Unit 10 back to being pretty unbelievable. I totally agree. And... A couple factors have had had that, an influence on it. Number one, obviously, the tag allocation has been awesome. And to tell you the truth, I know that the, the ranch is charging. And I talk about the ranch because it's pretty much half the unit. I mean, it's almost, you know, what, 800,000 acres. And there's some really good hunting off the ranch. Ten is huge. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's the biggest, I think it's the biggest unit in the state. 
has lots of area those bulls can hide. For sure, that's one of the positive things about Tim, but it's also one of the reasons it's 30% success, too, on the archery hunts. It's lower, but you have a chance at a bigger bull because more of them live, and uh, they get older age class. You still have a reservation there, which is nice that there's a little bit of a sanctuary on that side, and, um, and it's a big enough unit that they can hide. What I love about the, what they're doing about the ranch is, you know, they're making these outfitters come up with a liability insurance policy to get on the ranch, um, and they're charging them $500. Now, do I like regulations where I have to pay $500? No. But what I do like about it is the fact you do have to pay $500, and that keeps a lot of the outfitters and a lot of the hunters. Oh, and besides, you can't hunt water um, on the ranch, and you can't put up trail cameras. And guys don't want to pay a trespass fee on the ranch, So, which is fine with me. You're almost creating a subunit within the unit. And so you have, you can hunt off the ranch, which gives you a lot of land to hunt, or you can hunt in the subunit, Unit 10, which I call Bokeas, and, you know, it's coming back. I mean, I hunted it this year, Jay, with my clients, and um, you cannot believe all the multiple t chances we had at 380-plus bulls. And I know that has to do with the antler growth was good, but it was also there was no one on the ranch. And last year there was no one on the ranch compared to the years provided before so for the last three years we're seeing less and less hunting pressure now they've reduced the tag allocation and now you're getting a really good hunting experience on that ranch not too many hunters quality bulls and you're not getting ran overrun with guys running off your elk so i do think it's coming back if they can keep this up um i think unit 10 is the unit to be in for big bulls yeah, I hope you're right. I think you're right. I hope you're right. Um, I, you know, I used to love Unit 10, and then, quite honestly, uh, you know, when there was 200 archers and 100 early rifle and 500 or 550 late tags, like it almost was one of those deals where like you just got sick to even go up there because it's like there's twice as many tags. You know, during the archery season or forever, there was 100 or maybe even, you know, I even remember when it bumped up to 150. But, you know, you get 200 archers running around, and then before they made the, the regulations on the Bokeas, you know, every group of hunter has, you know, 10 guys helping them. Well, now with limiting the amount of people that can, you know, help, they each have to pay, you know, it creates a situation where the guys that are going to come up for three days, they aren't going to pay the, the fee to go with their buddy on the ranch, which, you Correct. know, it, I think the hard thing that people have with unit 10 and the, 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 the fury, if you will, or the frustration that people have is they're so used to hunting it, just willy-nilly, everything goes, and they're, they're used to that. When it, things get reined in a little bit and there's regulation in place and there's some fee structure there, you know, it just becomes just a huge ordeal and, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, you it's still an unbelievable place, and the way I look at it, the fee that is charged, you get so much in return that the fee, in my mind, is nominal. Now, I'm sure I'll get, you know, hate mail for that, but it's, that's the way I feel. I feel like it's such, it's such an unbelievable place, and yes, it is checkerboarded, but the majority of it is private land. You know, we should be happy that we we can pay a fee and still access the ranch. 
Well, think so about they, this. I mean, the reality is also, Jay, is that they're, they're splitting up. The guys that don't want to go on the ranch hunt the other half of the unit, and the guys who want to go on the ranch hunt that unit. So now you have these subunits, and nobody oversteps each other, and it works out for both people. The guys who don't want to go on the ranch aren't pressured by the guys who do want to go on the ranch and vice versa. So in my opinion, you know, it, it's working out really nice if they can keep this the way it is as far as the, the, the number of guys going on the ranch because now you're not seeing too many hunters in one place, and that's the whole goal of this because there is good bulls in Unit 10 almost anywhere you'd want to go. And now you don't have guys walking on each other. And, and for that, I'm thankful for it. And because I outfit, I'll gladly pay the $500 and go on there uh, if I don't have the hunting pressure because it's worth it to me as an outfitter. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, we've talked about trophy units, and I'm sure you get uh, a lot of the questions that I get as well, uh, you know, guys that are in the middle, they're, they're non-residents and they're kind of in the middle, they're in that, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten point range, you know, they're kind of in, you know, quote unquote no man's land, meaning they don't have very much chance to draw the 23s, the 9s, the 10s, um, you know, even the 7 west or the 8, uh, you know, but they're in that, you know, six, seven, eight range. And, and, and the guy that's truly saying, hey, you know, I just want an elk hunt. I just want a good hunt where I can kill a, you know, 300 to 320-inch bull. You know, are there any units in the mid-tier that jump out at you that, that you would say, hey, these are pretty good units for what you're getting? Well, I think Unit 8 is one of those units. Um, you know, it's had a good history. It, it gets knocked a little bit because of the, I don't know, the, there's a lot of vacationers that go up there on the weekends that can mess your hunt up. Um, there's a high number of cow hunts, which I wish they wouldn't do at the same time. And Unit 8's not a very big unit, but it doesn't take a lot of points to draw Unit 8, and I think you can, get a, you can kill a really nice bull. Last couple years, it's been very good. Very solid 350-plus bulls. Um, you don't need the bonus points you need. Uh, in unit 9 and 10 and 1. So that would be one on my list that sticks out. Um, also, 7 West, like I said before, another really good unit that they've managed well uh, recently, and I've seen a lot of good bulls. And if you even want to drop down, I consider those Tier 2 type units, you know, Unit 8, 7 West, 27. If you want to drop down to the Tier 3 units that you can have a very good experience on, you're going to see a little more hunters, but you're also going to see... Uh, you're going to see, you know, good bulls, 330-plus uh, type bulls, a lot of those. You know, I would go to 5B South, uh, 5B North, 7 East, 6A. A little more hunters, but um, a lot of bulls. And it's a good hunting experience. You're going to be in a good bulls. They're going to be bugling. Um, and we've had lots of hunters in those the last three or four years. And uh, those are kind of, especially if I'd be south, I mean, that's becoming a really good unit that I would recommend to somebody who hasn't taken a bull over, you know, 320. Another good unit, and doesn't take that many points to draw either. Good stuff there. Um, Travis, I want to ask you about your uh, Zero Guide Fees program, and uh, I really don't know much about it. 
you know, in the little that I have seen, it, it, it feels to me like you've really stepped out there, stepped outside the box, and came up with something that, uh, you know, I'm sure you've gotten, uh, you know, I'm sure you've gotten your share of scrutiny. I'm sure you've gotten people that are, you know, saying, well, what's this? Because it is so far out of the norm. Um, I'd like for you to explain this zero guide fees uh, system that you that you have um, started. Oh well, that's I'm glad you <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Um, yeah, so about six years ago, this derived from basically guide fees. Un unfortunately, I don't see it changing. Guide fees are becoming you know a guided hunt or an outfitter becoming a rich man's sport. Uh, we're having to pay for more permits, insurance, fuel. The guides we hire to work for us, all that's going up, uh, leaving a lot of guys on the outside looking in. A lot of guys would love to use an outfitter, reputable outfitter, and just never be able to afford it. And so six years ago, in 2009, I started strategizing about a way that we could turn it around, uh, make it all-inclusive instead of excluding so many guys who would like to use it, and um, you know how we would do that. What would that look like, and would it work? Because when you start promising guys that you're going to pay for hunts, you know, today and 20 years from now, that's a big promise. And so you don't take that lightly, and so you just don't haphazardly come out and say, hey, we're going to pay for your guide fees you know, when you get drawn 10 years from now. So that took about three years because the goal was or the idea was to say, hey, how can we give, give the hunt away for nothing and make everyone pay a little something up front. And if we get enough guys to pay a little something into the pot, that pot of money would pay for the few guys who get drawn. And then eventually when you get drawn, that pot will pay for your hunt. And if I had to make an example of what it closely resembles without saying that it's insurance, because it's not, it's a membership-based program, but I tell guys car insurance, you know, how can – how can a guy paying $50 a month get one $30,000 wreck and that the insurance company pay for it? It's because of all the other people who didn't get in the car wreck. And so we made the same kind of program, but we made a membership. Pay your membership one time a year. When you get drawn, we'll cover your hunt. And that's what Zero Guide Fees does. And that's the premise. And I know when I first came out with that, a lot of people thought that it was a scam or I haphazardly come up with this idea, or I'm trying to rip people off because they've never seen it in our industry before. But the reality is it works, and it works great because the precedent has already been set with the tag allocation by the Game and Fish in each one of these states. So we use that information, or we use that, I guess, filtering system that the Game and Fish use for the residents and non-residents and how they filter every species, every weapon, uh, and every hunt, they filter that for us. And we use that filtering process towards our membership. And by having those numbers, now we can come up with a program to make guys pay a one small membership fee a year, and then get, when they get drawn, we can pay for their hunt. And that's what Zero Guide Fees does. Okay. Let me, let me just, um, I'm sure you've heard all these questions before. What about the guy that says, 
okay, I pay in for 10 years and travel, something happens to you. What happens to my money? Yes. I hear that all the time. Uh, that's probably our number one question. So I have a response to that. It might not be what everybody wants to hear. In life, we take risk all the time. When I get in my truck and I drive it down the road, I'm taking a risk that I might get in an accident. I might even die. Is the risk high? No, but it's a risk. When I dump money into my 401k, is it a risk that I will not get it back? Yeah. Is it a low risk? Yes. But if I remember right in 2008, the 401ks did change for people. So there's a risk in, involved in everything. And with this, there's no different. The question is how much risk. So what I tell people is look at the history of what we've been able to establish, at least in Arizona, because zero guide fee members are going to get drawn. When they get drawn, they're going to be guided by Arizona Elk Outfitters and Arizona Strip Guides. And yes, those are my companies. So, so being a member in Arizona with zero guide fees, you're going to say, okay, if I'm going to be guided by Arizona Strip Guides and Arizona Elk Outfitters, how do I know they're going to be around in 10 years? So I tell guys, the company's been around almost 40 years, started by my dad. Uh, I've been doing this for 25 years. I have partners, uh, two partners in the zero guide fee. So if something happens to me, nothing happens to the company. Um, and we continue. We all have sons. We want to give this company to our sons. So it's a generational thing. I'm second generation. My son, when he picks us up, it'll be third generation. I can't guarantee, Jay, that there'll even be hunting allowed in Arizona. So I can't even guarantee that. So all I can tell guys is if you put in 10 years of membership, we're going to be around as long as it's allowed, and we're going to be here. But can they ban hunting altogether? They could do that. Yes, it's, imp it's pro improbable. But if they did, what happens to my money after 10 years? Nothing. You don't get the money back. It's a, so there is a risk in paying the membership. What that membership does, Jay, just so everybody listening knows, it is just like car insurance. When I pay my $50 a month, it's in case I get in a car wreck. But if I don't get in a car wreck, they do not refund me the $50. Same thing with zero guide fees. I pay the $350 in case I get drawn. If I do not get drawn, you don't get back the $350. So if you've been in for 10 years and you walk away from the system, that $350 is gone. Every year there's a new year starts, that, that 350 is gone. So that's what it is. It's, that membership money is paying for that. And there is no 100% guarantee by putting in the money that you're going to get that back. However, people can do their due diligence. They can see the reputation that my dad has started and the reputation of this company. And if they feel the risk isn't great enough, they can go ahead and pay their membership for a future hunt. How is it going, Travis? It's amazing. It's amazing. We're fulfilling a need that guys love. There's so many guys, Jay, out there that would love to use a reputable outfitter, but they don't have the funds or the means to do this. This levels that playing field. By paying just $350 a year, most guys can afford that. And now in Arizona, you will get drawn. It's a matter of time. You will get drawn. And so that 350 it does a couple things. Number one, it makes it affordable. Number two, you're paying a little bit amount at a time. Instead of getting drawn and looking for an outfitter, as we know outfitter fees are going to continue to go up. So if I get drawn in five years, 
all of a sudden I'm looking for an outfitter. Now I'm going to go find out how much the outfitter fees are. And they're going to be expensive, and I'm going to have to pay all at once up front. Well, what Zero Guide Fees does is it allows guys to pay a little bit of money over time. So it really becomes recession-proof. It doesn't matter if your lifestyle changes down the road or if you lose your job or if the economy sucks or you got to put money towards your kid's college, and that money was going to be used for your outfitted hunt when you drew Unit 9. Now you don't have to worry about that because Zero Guide Fees is covering you in the future. So it doesn't matter what your economic social status looks like moving forward. We got you covered. So it's fulfilling a need that is, needs to be out there. Um, and guys are really attaching to it, and guys are really liking it once they figure it out. Now, there is a difference between, when I say 350, and I want to be clear, there is a difference between residents and non-residents, and that might be one of your questions coming down the road, but the fee structure and how we filter residents compared to non-residents is different. I assume that came from a statistical look of, you know, if you do it with residents, they have a much better chance to draw than a non-resident. So I'm sure you had to structure the fee differently. Uh, exactly right. So at first we did not uh, plan to do this for residents. It was only for non-residents because, as you know, at the state, 10% goes to non-residents and they cap it at the state level, and we use that cap for our actuary. Um, but we had a, such a high demand that residents wanted to use this, we had to come up with a policy or a program that would work for them as well, but yet protect ourselves. As you know, if I promise a bunch of hunts to a bunch of residents to get drawn all at once, I would bankrupt myself. And therefore, when I started Zero Guy Fees, everybody thought I was crazy. Um, but since I started Zero Guy Fees, there's two other companies copying us, and there's other companies, other states that are, are doing this as well. Um, but getting back to the residents, so yes, so 90% of the residents can definitely be drawn. So how we do it is we cut the membership in half. So instead of being 350 like non-residents, it's 175 So there's a discount for residents right there. Then when they go to enroll, they're going to get a 50 to 100% discount off their hunt. So it's unlike uh, non-residents. So non-residents get 100% off their hunt. doesn't matter how many points they have. They pay 350 they're going to get a fully outfitted hunt on zero guide fees. Residents, however, pay 175 and they're going to get 50 to 100% off of their hunt, depending on how many bonus points they have for the species that they want to be covered for. So that's the difference. So, for example, if you want to hunt the strip or the kaibab for, um, well, let's keep it for elk since we're talking about elk. Let's say you want to hunt early rifle 10 uh, elk, and you have six points. The system recognizes that you have six points and is going to give you a 100% discount on your hunt. So we're going to give you a seven-day hunt, 100%, because you have six points. However, if you went into that same unit and you had 20 points, now you're going to get 50% discounted off your hunt. Therefore, you're going to have to put a little skin in the game to cover your hunt because you had so many points because you knew you were going to draw right away. In and that protects us on you, the. You have to kind of guard your business that if you had a bunch of points and were almost guaranteed a tag, that you wouldn't, 
people would take advantage and just apply because they know they're going to draw. They pay the they pay the 175 or the 350, and they know they're getting a tag. Um, the 350 would be the non-resident. They're going to they're going to get guided regardless. But the non-resident that has a bunch of points, they're they're going to pay half of the guide fee. If they have they a still and, and our 50% discount. Correct. So exactly. So they're going to choose. They get to choose when their benefit comes up or when they get drawn. They can choose from a five-day fully outfitted hunt or a seven-day guide-only hunt. I value that around $4,500 to $5,000 in traditional guide fees. For example, Willie Bloomquist hunted with us this year. He used to play for the Diamondbacks. You might have heard of him. He only had two points, signed up for $175 as an Arizona resident, put in Unit 10, got drawn right away, paid $175, and we covered his hunt fully outfitted because he only had two points. If he had had 20 points, we would have covered his hunt. Uh, he would have had to pay $3,000 towards his hunt, and we would give him, um, we value that hunt at five to $6,000. He would have to pay anywhere from $2,500 to $3,000 towards his hunt. Still a great deal, right? You still get seven days with a reputable outfitter on an early rifle hunt for less than three grand. Still a great deal, but it's not 100% off. So it just depends on where you're at with the bonus points will determine what your discount will be. And you're exactly right, Jay. That covers my company on the back end because we're dealing with 90% of the residents. If they all had lots of points they all could put in and they all could draw all at once, I would have to be on the I would flip the bill for all of them. This way it protects me a little bit on the back end that they have to put a little skin in the game so at least I can afford to do their hunts, especially if they have a lot of points. But it still saves them. I mean, the, the nice thing about the program is if you don't want to pay retail for a guided hunt, this saves you anywhere from 50 to 100% off your hunts by paying 170. All you do is pay 175 a year, and now you're covered at up to some point. The biggest question I get from residents is, how do I know what my discount is? How do I know what my discount is? That's my biggest question. So we're revamping the website. It'll be done in about six days from now. You'll be able to go on there, click on the state, click on the species, click on the weapon. You'll be able to tell me how many points you have. And when you do that, it'll tell you the discount in each unit that you qualify for. So we only list certain units that we want to hunt in. Those units that you qualify for, what we call qualification, those units that we want to hunt in, like 10 and 9 and 1 and 27, the discount amount will be on each one of those units. So now the resident can visually see what his discount is in each unit. If he's to draw any of those units, he'll know what his discount is. And we track all that. When you become a member with us, you're creating an account. And in your account, all this information stays in your account. So you can always go to your account and see exactly what we promised you and what your discount is so that there's no discrepancies. Okay, one more question. Um, what about the guy that says, well, yeah, you probably get a bunch of guys drawn, and then you've got to get a million guides to work for it. Does the quality of your guide, guided hunt experience that you're going to get go down because Travis all of a sudden has to get a bunch of guides to guide for him rather than the normal 
you know, smaller time outfit. Like it seems to me that you would have a bunch of guys drawn for hunts and you'd have a, have to go get a bunch of guys. Well, and that's, there's always going to be clients out there that want the small outfit that only does a very few hunts and they want that one-on-one -on -one attention from the actual owner. There's always going to be those guys on some kind of level who want that. And so that's really not what we're competing against. I think that demand will always be there. What we're doing, and, and since I came up with this six years ago, and we've only started this, we're in our third year. Okay, so we started this, I thought of this thing six years ago. For three years, we worked on actuaries, worked on the numbers, um, wanted to make sure we weren't promising things that we couldn't deliver on. Um, and so we're now in our third year. We had 35 guys drawn uh, that were members this year, and they all got quality hunts. They killed some really nice animals. People could go to the website at zeroguidefees.com and see the members' testimonials and how they liked their hunt. To answer that question, Jay, is for five, for since six years now, I've known that we were going to start doing this. So what I've done is started to bring in more guides and more guides. So I have 40 guides, all quality, that work for me right now. I'm capable of doing over 100 hunts without, in my opinion, losing any quality. Um, I, I'll do 90 hunts this year. My goal with zero guide fees is to do 200 hunts a year through the ZGF membership. So I feel if we can get two to 3,000 members putting in for Arizona, I'll be able to draw around 5 to 10% of those guys every year and keep it in-house. So basically we'll be guiding members. And we'll, we want to grow to be able to do 200. Now when I say 200, that's not elk. That's all four species. That's antelope, sheep, elk, and deer. And we feel because the seasons are at different times, we feel we can manage that without losing any quality. I've also created an internship program. So guides that want, or hunters who want to become guides with us, I have them come into the program, they hunt with us, they, they're spotters, they're cooks, they come in, they do not get paid, they hunt with us for a year, they come on all the hunts that they can, and we slowly work them into the program and slowly work them into being guides um, because we know we are growing. I know USO and, and a couple of these other guys got really, really big, and I know as you grow and you get big, you lose quality. And there's guys that are not going to like that, and I get it. But what we're trying to do is do this slowly over time and build up. And as we grow, we bring in new guys. We teach them how to guide. They go through our program, and then we launch them out uh, to be good guides. And so that's what we're trying to do. Uh, because I know that is a concern from guys, and we don't feel like we've lost any quality. In fact, if you look at all the ZGF members who killed, they killed some pretty awesome stuff this year. And to be honest with you, Jay, I kind of I favor the, the, the members, to be honest with you. I'm going to book all my members first from now on because I want them to have a high-quality hunt. I want them to know that we did exactly what we wanted to say, uh, do. We promised. We delivered. I want them to go home. I want them to tell their friends and their family and say, listen, ZGF's legit. Pay your 350 right now and go hunt with those guys when you draw. And because the reality is those guys can become members, and I can make membership monies off them day one. The guy that books with me traditionally, I'm going to give him a great hunt. But when he goes home and he says, yeah, I had a good hunt with AEO or ASG, you should, 
you should go hunt with them when you draw in 20 years. As you know, I'm not going to make money off that guy for 20 years until he draws. So what would I, as a business model, I'd rather make memberships than traditional guide fees. And so I want every tradition, I want every member to have a quality, high quality hunt with us so that they can spread the word. And that's my other number one. Second question is, how do I know I'm going to get a good guide? Because I know the guy next to me is paying 6000 for his hunt, and I only paid $350. And so hopefully I just answer that, because I want every member to have a high-quality hunt so that we can spread the word, because this only thing works with members. Well, you explained it very well. I uh, want to give you a chance to uh, tell people where they can find you, uh, websites, social media, phone numbers, whatever you want to give out. And it's been awesome having you on the podcast. Uh, I've been wanting to have you on uh, prior to this. Just, uh, you know, we all get busy and what have you. But it's uh, great to hear your expertise and um, love hearing the stories about your dad and, and um, commend you on, you know, going outside the box with the zero guide fee business. Um, it was a bit of a leap of faith for you to step out there and, a businessman myself, I always uh, admire uh, guys that are willing to uh, go, you know, kind of outside the box and do something a little differently. And I wish you the best of success uh, in all your endeavors. Uh, and uh, go ahead and tell the listeners uh, the places where the best they can reach you. Well, thanks, Jay, for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I just want to give everybody listening confidence that, um, you know, this is disruptive innovation. And disruptive innovation is when you, you come up with something innovative that disrupts the marketplace. And I know a lot of guys haven't seen this concept done in our industry before, but the reality is it's done all over the place all the time. And now that we have technology that tells us the odds, this thing will work, it can work, and it's definitely uh, something that we want to um, move, move to other states. In fact, we're coming out. Uh, with Utah here in about a week, uh, we don't guide in Utah. But if you're a member with us in Utah, you're going to pay one $350 fee. That's going to cover one or all eight species in Utah. So it's going to be all-inclusive. You just pay one fee. You get drawn for any of the eight, and we will pay zero guide fees. We'll pay for your outfitter of your choice. Um, so you pick out the outfitter in Utah. We're going to add this to Nevada. We're going to want to go to New Mexico and in Colorado. So we, we, we're not just talking about Arizona. I want to change how Western states guiding is done because it's got to change. It can't just keep going up and up, eliminating more and more people. We want to give the hunts back to the middle class, back to the people who would love to use them, and this is an avenue. This is a way of doing that. It combats the rich guy mentality in our industry. And so that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm hearing for. If you guys are interested in it, I would love the guys listening to go to our zeroguidefees.com. That's zero spelled out, guidefees with an S.com. You guys can find out more information there. You can also sign up and enroll. And if they have any questions, you guys can email me at travis at zeroguidefees.com um, or give me a call, and uh, we'll talk about it. I'll try to ease some of the concerns. But once, once I explain the situation and how it works, most guys either love it or they're not going to use it, but the guys who understand it really like it, and they, they sign up with the confidence of knowing that we're going to be around, we're going to give them a hunt, and um, we're going to do what we say we're going to do. So, so I appreciate you having me coming on, Jay. Hopefully um, that answers a lot of questions, and I would love for, for you to have my dad on sometime. I think it would be uh, really great.
I'm definitely going to do that uh, for sure. It's been a long time coming, and uh, I look forward to that day. And uh, Travis, I really appreciate you spending time with us. Uh, God bless you going into the new year, uh, and uh, I'll see you down the road, I'm sure. And, and uh, thanks, thanks for all of your uh, uh, knowledge and passion that you shared uh, today. And um, you know, uh, wish you the best of success with with your business, and and uh, can't wait to watch it grow. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Take care. Okay, take care. All right, bye.